Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. What are we doing this week, Kemper? We are discussing A Pocket Full of Rye. When was that published, Kemper? We have our usual breakdown of UK versus US. It was first serialized in the UK in the Daily Express in late 1953, and then published in book form by, of course, Collins Crime Club in November of the same year. And then it is one year later in the US that it was first serialized in the Chicago Tribune in early 1954, a few months later, and then published by Dodd Mead in the US later that same year. I actually have a few fun publishing tidbits about this title, which I don't always have. But (laughs) Please um, tell me. First is that this is the last year, 1953, that Christie would have two books published in one year. We already covered After the Funeral, which was published in 1953, and then this one was also published. You know, her output would remain remarkably steady, of course, throughout her entire career. But this is kind of the point where it's beginning to slow ever so slightly. We're not in that fever pitch point that we were in the 30s and 40s, and we will only get slower from here. And so it's just a little reminder that we are in the last third of the of at this point, even though we have plenty of gems yet to come. I think we would also be remiss if we did not just mention up top that this is a nursery rhyme title, but we will get into that. And I think this is actually one of the better ones. Yeah, no, I think so too. Right? It's acknowledged in the book and it's even kind of a clever usage of the nursery rhyme. But the pedant in me just has to take a moment to pause about this. It drives me nuts every time I have to type out the title, A Pocket Full of Rye, that Christy... Oh, because the, the space? Yes. Yeah, so for some reason, Christy saw fit to title this book A Pocket Space Full, full F-U-L-L, yes. of Rye, even though in the text itself, it is referenced as Pocketful, P-O-C-K-E-T-F-U-L, within the text generally and also within the nursery rhyme, which will be referenced you- and which we will be reading out. Do you know, I had to double and triple check because I kept typing Pocketfall. It's so bizarre, and it's one of the few times that the Hickson series departed from the source material because they were usually so overly solicitous about being faithful to the text, especially especially in the beginning. And this is actually um, in the first season of the Hickson adaptations. Mm -hmm. But the title of the Hickson film is A Pocketful of Rye. And you know what? I don't blame them. Per Janet Morgan, Christie biographer, who we reference quite a bit, when Christie's agent, Edmund Cork, her longtime agent, had to send Agatha proofs of this novel, uh, she was in Nimrud, you know, modern day Iraq, on her yearly archaeological sojourn with Max. And the manuscript was detained by customs on suspicion of being, quote, agricultural propaganda end quote, Mm. because of the fact, obviously, that it had rye in the title. I just thought that was really amusing. Speaking of Edmund Cork, we should note the provenance of this book, because unlike most of Christie's books, it's actually rather complicated. We know that Christie gifted some of her books to family members sometimes, but for the most part, you know, she owned her books and the books lay with her estate after her death. But this book actually ended up being in the possession of the Cork family, and for extremely interesting reasons. And I'm actually cobbling this together from three different books. Uh, First is the Janet Morgan biography. Second is the Laura Thompson biography, which we also reference quite a bit, as well as one of our favorites, Agatha Christie on screen, written by Christie scholar and good friend Mark Aldridge. So here is the deal. 
Agatha's second husband, Max Mallowan, archaeologist extraordinaire that he was, had become the director of the British School of Archaeology in Iraq. And part of what he did as director was to restart these excavations in Nimrud. So that is, you know, why Agatha was going there with him every year. And this was very much a pet project of his. And at the point when A Pocket Full of Rye was coming out, he was working on this big two-volume tome that was called Nimrod and Its Remains. But just then, the funding for the British School of Archaeology fell out, which meant that his life's work was in danger of never being completed, and he was very much at a loss as to how to continue. So, per Edmund Cork, and I'm quoting here now from Laura Thompson's biography, this is what he said. We have devised a scheme by which Agatha, who cannot support the school directly because of her tax position, gave pocket full of rye to the school, and I have bought it from them. So this book was part of, oh yes, a tax scheme on Christie's part to give Max Malwin money so that he could keep working on his book, which would eventually come out, by the way, in 1966. Apparently he was not quite as speedy of a writer as his wife. I imagine it's probably not as much of a page turner either as Pocketful of Rye. Just, just going to go out on a limb there. <laughs> I know. I, I don't think either of us have read that, but, you know, just a guess. Yeah, I haven't, haven't read it. Can't say it's on my uh, bedside table. And incidentally, Cork bought, I'm using air quotes here, bought the book for 7,500 pounds. Hmm, I wonder where he got that 7,500 pounds from. And that's why the rights then went on to lie with the Cork family, which will become significant when we get to the adaptations for this novel. So stay tuned on that front. But I just thought it was really fascinating that this book was wrapped up in a tax scheme implicating uh, (laughs) Agatha and her husband. Makes some sense, actually. Totally. She has a long and tortuous history with her taxes, as evidenced by their frequent mention in these books. Right. All right. I am now done with my tidbits. Let's talk about the victims, Catherine Brobeck. So our first victim is Mr. Rex Fortescue, a London businessman who is seemingly poisoned in his tea at the office with taxine, which is a poison derived from yew berries. Next up, we have Mrs. Adele Fortescue, Rex's much younger wife, who is definitely poisoned in her tea by an old favorite, potassium cyanide. And then we have Miss Gladys Martin, the Fortescue maid, who is strangled outside of their home and a clothespin put over her nose. Yes, that clothespin is going to cause a whole lot of trouble. Yes, it is. Let's talk about some suspects because guess what? It's everyone. It's so many people, Kemper. There is so many suspects. It's so many people. We are on an estate here, so it's the usual light slash loose closed circle kind of a case <laughs> that we get when, when we're on an estate, but it's pretty much every character we meet in this book. First up, we've got Percival Fortescue, who is Rex's son and the presumed heir to the family business. And we have Jennifer, Mrs. Val Fortescue, who's Percival's wife, and she was a nurse before marrying Percival. Right, because Percival is referred to as Val often Mm -hmm. in this book. Next up, we have Elaine Fortescue, who is the daughter of the family. So that would be Percival's sister. And she is madly in love with a man her father doesn't want her to marry. Then we have Lancelot, Lance Fortescue, who's the dilettante prodigal son of Rex, recently returned from East Africa. 
And then we have Patricia Fortescue, who is Lance's wife, now on her third marriage. She is originally from Ireland, and she seems to be cursed with uh, just a run of bad luck in her life. And then we have Gerald Wright, who is Elaine's would-be fiancé, who no one likes except Elaine. Next up is Vivian Dubois. That would be Adele's lover. Uh, Shades of Raymond Starr in a body in the library, or even better, Claude Luttrell, lounge lizard from the Parker Pine series. He is a prototypical lounge lizard. And then we have Mary Dove, the housekeeper, proto Lucy Islesboro, wrapped inside a Ruth Lessing from Sparkling Cyanide. There's definitely an enigma inside there somewhere. She's very competent. There is something up there. Yeah, more more than meets the eye with that Mary Dove. Next up is Mrs. Crump, the cook, who seems to hate everyone and everything except for food. Kind of makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And we have Mr. Crump, the really awesomely ne'er-do-well butler. I mean, he is just a piece of work. He's a mess. We actually had a listener who called out the fact that we said that the butler in After the Funeral was the sort of the last of the fleshed out butlers in Christie. And I still think that that is true. I don't think that Mr. Crump is fleshed out, but he's not. He's not. (laughs) But But he's a mess. And he's kind of great (laughs) because he's just he's just a disaster. He is very bad at his job and just not up to anything good. You know, he does not give an F. Fair statement. Next up, we're almost done. We have Miss Ramsbottom, who is Rex Fortescue's late wife. So this would be his first wife's sister. She's a religious holy roller slash shut in who totally reminded me of Hannah, the Bible mad servant from spoiler alert here for anyone who hasn't read the Partners in Crime series, Tommy and Tuppence podcast favorite. So skip ahead a little bit. But in the House of Lurking Death, poor Hannah, um, you know, she just kind of set an old lady on fire in her bed. (laughs) (laughs) And um, last but not least, we have Albert Evans, who's Gladys's boyfriend, who, you know, it's a little bit like when someone says, oh, I have a girlfriend in Canada. That's funny. I've never heard of a George Glass at our school. That's because he's a transfer student. He came in the last week of school. He's really good looking, and he thinks I'm super cool. Sure, Jan. That may or may not be uh, an important point, too, whether or not Albert (laughs) Evans exists in this story. All right, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Mr. Rex Fortescue is taking his morning tea at his offices in the city. We have this setting of a stockbroker's firm, Mm -hmm. which is painted for many, many pages at the beginning of this book. We're used to Christy padding her stories toward the end, but it's... Oh, no, it's padded at the beginning, which is like the craziest thing. Yeah, and you can tell right away. It's delightful because it's Christy. It's not potentially as delightful as some of her padding can be in some other books. For example, all of the business going on and after the funeral, we called out a lot of that padding slash red herring business as being some of our favorite parts of the book. I didn't feel quite as strongly about it here. Not that I minded it. It's just interesting for it to come right at the beginning as hard and heavy as it does. So we're going to skip over all of that. And uh, Mr. Rex Fortescue kills over dead, much to the chagrin of his beautiful secretary, Miss Grosvenor, like the square. It turns out that Mr. Rex Fortescue was poisoned with an unusual poison, taxine which comes from you berries. I have to say, I was disappointed that this poison does not appear 
in A is for arsenic. I know. I looked at that. I looked right? it up too. Yes. Yeah, I, I looked it up too. <laughs> in any case, it's an unusual one and it comes from Uberries. Mr. Rex Fortescue happens to live at a rather grandiose estate called Yew Tree Lodge. So turns out there's all sorts of yew trees surrounding the estate and we're getting a sense of where those yew berries might have come from. So this brings in the presence of Inspector Neil of Scotland Yard. He's, you know, mid-30s. He is clearly very smart. He's actually like a good character, I would have to say, but he's slightly baffled by what he's walked into. He ends up going to Utree Lodge, and there he meets with what we might say is a motley crew of people. So we have the Crumps, husband and wife. I mean, neither of them actually has a motive. And then there is a housemaid named Gladys, who is overwhelmingly nervous about Inspector Neal, but he writes it off sort of as the nerves of the staff in general, right? This is what Christy writes about Gladys's demeanor in that interview. I'm quoting here. She looked both guilty and terrified. And then also, for a moment or two, he wondered if she knew more about the matter than she was willing to admit. That Christy, she always plays fair. Yep, totally fair. So what happens next, Kemper? Inspector Neal, after going through the downstairs, who I would also note are kind of more interesting than the upstairs characters. The downstairs are a bunch of weirdos. No, they are. The crumps are totally bizarre. And Gladys is also, I mean, Gladys, you know, spoiler, but Gladys is a focus of the novel. So she's a very fleshed out character. And a lot of the upstairs characters turn out to be... A little bit more of the character tropes, let's say, that we run into sometimes in Christie novels. I have to also give credit where it's due to a listener who I was corresponding with about this very novel and who mentioned that. And immediately when he said it, I was like, yeah, you're totally right. And it's not necessarily unusual because Christie often has the help in her novels and they're often very key. But it's noticeable here how much more robust (laughs) the characters are, or at least unusual and individual. Right. Also, Mary Dove is a really main character for really no reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, we see a lot. A lot of the early scenes are almost through her eyes. They're at least, you know, Mm -hmm. this is third person, but it's from her perspective. And, you know, that's why we called her a proto Lucy Islesboro. Like, we'll get to Lucy Islesboro soon. In 450 from Paddington. But the notion of a super smart young woman who could do anything and who has chosen to go into domestic service because you can charge what you want for it because in these post-war days, it's very hard to come by, and she's made the decision that that's what she wants to do. It's an interesting character, and it, to me, it feels like she was testing out the character that would eventually become Lucy Islesboro. I didn't necessarily love where Mary Dove went, and we'll get there. I was a little deflated by the conclusion of the Mary Dove character, but, mm-hmm. but she, too, adds to that downstairs element, because she's very interesting and unusual, and you're immediately wondering, well, and made to wonder what is going on with her. Correct. All right. Yeah, Inspector Neal immediately assumes that the wife, Adele, must have had some hand in the poisoning, as she's the only one with a really clear motive. You know, we'll later find out that upon Rex's death, she is due 100,000 pounds, so it's a huge bequest coming to her, and that this would have effectively bankrupted the firm, which has been falling on some hard times. And we also find out that Adele had very recently rewritten her will, in which she left everything to a certain lounge lizard, Mr. Vivian (laughs) Dubois, her... (laughs) 
lover with whom she played lots of golf, quote unquote. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's a lot going on there with Adele. A lot going on there. And then also arriving at U-Tree Lodge. By the way, U-Tree Lodge is not a lodge. Inspector Neal notes this. It's a massive country house. It's not just a massive country house. It's a massive tacky country house. Yes. Correct. It's just worth pulling out how Christy does describe that house because I think it goes a long way toward setting the bitterness or sourness of the tone. And this is where most of the novel takes place at Utree Lodge. Here's what she writes. This place, this pretentiously named Utree Lodge, was just the kind of mansion that rich people built themselves and then called it their little place in the country. It wasn't in the country either, according to Inspector Neal's idea of the country. The house was a large, solid red brick structure with rather too many gables and a vast number of leaded paned windows. The gardens were highly artificial, all laid out in rose beds and pergolas and pools, and living up to the name of the house with large numbers of clipped yew hedges. Also arriving there, though, is Lancelot. Lance Fortescue and his wife, Patricia Pat Fortescue, who'd come to the country from Kenya, Kenya, I suppose, if you're them, in East Africa. Um, And Lance was once sort of a favored son, but Rex found him to be a bad lot and had more or less cut him off. So he has, in theory, minimal financial incentive in terms of motive, and also he wasn't there. Pat, later in the novel, will say that if she had her own house, she hated the gardens and that she would have picked, you know, like begonias and like other flowers and she hated the hedges and she'd never have picked any of that. It's a horrible house inhabited by horrible people. And pretty much the only character who's not unpleasant is Pat. And the way that Christy makes that clear is that when Miss Marple first sees her, she thinks immediately oh, this woman does not belong here in this house. Right. That is how we know that she's good <laughs> because the house is, <laughs> is, is awful. And it's just, it's unusual for all of these characters to be this unrelentingly awful. So oh, the bad. Below stairs, really. Again, right. they're a little more stereotypically, unsurprisingly awful above stairs, but make no mistake, they're all awful oh, above and below. Every single person in the house, with the exception of Pat. Totally. All right. Well, unfortunately for Inspector Neal, Adele, the main suspect, dies from a poisoned cup of tea. Cyanide in the tea. Uh, Much more unfortunately for Gladys, the maid, she is found dead as well after having inexplicably dressed in her nicest nylons and shoes that day and then also uh, leaving the tea tray in the hall before going outside. She was basically just about to deliver the tea tray for tea when she put it down, went outside and got strangled out in the yard and then had a clothespin put on her nose, which was a nasty little capping off to this brutal and seemingly hasty murder. And at this point in the story, we're about 100 pages in. Do you want to know who shows up, Kemper? I can hazard a guess. It might be Miss Marple. It's really actually interestingly written because it basically is written like this elderly lady 
who's real angry. Well, do you know what I immediately thought of, Catherine? Because I thought of you and your, we're going to talk for a second about after the funeral. So if you haven't listened to that episode or don't want that spoiled, fast forward a little bit. You made the point of how in after the funeral, when Christy describes a middle-aged lady in plumes of jet, right? She's in mourning Mm -hmm. plumes of jet. And how immediately your hackles were raised and you knew, knew, oh, okay, so something's up with Cora because she's not being Mm -hmm. named as Cora. I mean, from the second that Miss Marple is introduced and she isn't named and she's called yeah. an old lady yep. furious i was like oh dark marple is on the scene she uh, has by entered the way, by the, and also by the way i got like super excited because <laughs> i was like this is some dark marple about to happen and this is fodder by, for your dark marple Mar- M- jane marple did it jane marple here is an avenging angel and she is scary in this no, she is. And this is the first time I think we really get that depiction of her, but it won't be the last. This, I think, is it's almost like a pivot point in the portrayal of Miss Marple as a character. And it's a pivot that I like. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I know you love it. Yeah, but I mean, and so the funny thing is, like, this has been a tabloid story because these are rich people in a country house. And now you have a triple murder. So there is a police line outside of it. And they just let her through because they just assume that she's like someone's auntie or grandma, right? Yeah, which I love because it's believable. And let's talk about why she shows up because... Guess who trained poor Gladys to be a maid? Yes, of course, that would be Miss Marple. And this fits so seamlessly into the Miss Marple backstory that's already been established because she trains these poor orphaned girls, gives them a bit of experience as maids to her, and then they often take that experience and go on to what they think of anyway as bigger and better things. And that's exactly what Gladys has done here. You know, Miss Marple feels, I think, a sense of ownership in the best of ways over these girls who she trains. And she is very angry. Not only that Gladys was murdered, but in particular, that the murderer chose to put a clothespin over her nose after the life was snuffed out of her. And that just does not sit well with Miss Marple, and that is not going to fly, and she is going to figure out who did this and bring them to justice. So everyone better yeah. be real afraid. And, al- and also she read it in the newspaper, and I think that makes her even angrier. Yeah. This, no, is, I mean, this, is, this is angry Miss Marple. <laughs> No, it's angry Miss Marple, although what's so great is that even though we have her entering as this avenging fury, Christy still has her paying for her cab fare, quote, in a careful assortment of small change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I know. And then she also, the instant that Crump opens the door, this is what she thinks. A shifty eye, she said to herself, scared to death, too. It's like she's got him, his number immediately. She's like, OK, you're a baddie. I also just have to note, because this, this doesn't happen a lot, we get a fresh physical description of her. And it's really interesting. This is what Christy writes. A tall, elderly lady wearing an old-fashioned tweed coat and skirt, a couple of scarves, and a small felt hat with a bird's wing. That is a far cry from the old lady knitting in an armchair swathed in black lace and cap who we first met in the stories. But she is traveling. She is traveling. And also, by the way, it aligns a lot more with Joan Hickson. Oh, yeah. Again, the Peter Panning of Miss Marple. She becomes a younger character, certainly than she was in those 
early short stories. I think you can fudge it a little bit with, you know, she is in the bosom of her home in those short stories. And here she's traveling. So she's wearing different clothes. She has a more brisk attitude. She's also in an avenging fury mode, which she isn't always. So there's that. It's all fine. It doesn't read like it's a different person, but it's just a very different portrayal. So Inspector Neal is still in the house and he kind of clearly seems to need somebody to talk to, I guess. And he's pretty welcoming of Miss Marple in part because it turns out Scotland Yard (laughs) knows all about her. Sir Henry Clothering has been telling tales. Mm -hmm. And so she also ends up befriending Miss Ramsbottom deliberately. And then she gets an invite into the house itself. So she doesn't have to stay at the hotel. She's in there. And it's Miss Marple who first suggests to Inspector Neal that someone is acting out Sing a Song of Sixpence. Sing a Song of Sixpence, pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing, Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? The king was in the counting house, counting out his money. The queen was in the parlor, eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden, hanging out the clothes. Along came a blackbird and snipped off her nose. (laughs) Mother Goose, uh, not actually very (laughs) child-friendly. So, in other words, Rex, which is Latin for king, Mm -hmm. um, was in his banking office. Adele, the queen, was in the parlor eating bread and honey with her evening tea. Gladys, the maid, was in the garden and ended up with a clothespin on her nose. And Miss Marple convinces Inspector Neal to do a little bit of digging on blackbirds. And Inspector Neal digs, and he ends up finding a lot. I do have to say I found it refreshing that Inspector Neal was so eager to have Miss Marple's support and guidance in the solving of this. We we so often see these male inspectors who are just trying to get rid of her, or they're they're very Inspector Neal is legitimately a really good character. Here's what he finds out. It turns out that someone had left four dead blackbirds on Rex's desk the previous summer. On top of that, someone had fiddled with a pie that was served to him, putting actual dead blackbirds in it. Yuck. On top of that, (laughs) it turns out that Rex Fortescue had been one of the primary investors in something called, oh yes, the Blackbird Mine in Africa some 30 years Mm. ago, along with a co-investor named Mackenzie. And this was apparently a gold mine that failed, and Rex apparently abandoned his co-investor, this man Mackenzie, to die at the side of the mine, at which point Mackenzie's wife returned to England, vowed revenge, went insane, as happens, taught her children revenge, (laughs) and is currently residing in a home for the mentally disturbed, (laughs) you know, as these things tend to happen. So we then uh, segue into a scene in which Mrs. Mackenzie is questioned, and oh this boy. Is, and this is where I would actually, I think it's illuminating to make a parallel to another Christie novel that we truly love. A murder is announced because this scene reminded me so much. It was the parallel to, it was placed in the same part of the story as that lovely scene where the inspector, he goes up to see Belle Girdler, who's mm-hmm. this kind of shadowy right. woman. And she has this conversation where she's sort of talking about like the secrets of life and what joy means. And, they, and it ends up just being fascinating and interesting and the rhythms of it are so different from the rest of the book and it really stands out as this like lovely little pearl within the rest of the book 
This is more a little lump of coal shoved well, into the Inspector, book. Inspector Neal says because the administrator of the home is like, oh, you know, she's actually not crazy. And like, you know, she just has good days and bad days. And he starts talking to her. And then Inspector Neal, you get his internal thoughts. It's a little bit like kind of a, a rarity in Christie actually to get people's internal monologue mm-hmm. but you get yeah. inspector neil's internal monologue and he's like this is one of her good days yeah she's really not giving them much and she's clearly crazy i mean they find out some useful information but it's mainly just an unpleasant and odd exchange and um mm-hmm. Correct. Just suffers by comparison. Here's what we find out. The Mackenzie son died at Dunkirk, so he is out of the picture. I suppose we shouldn't assume that as astute readers, but spoiler, he really is out of the picture. <laughs> there's there's nothing yeah. to him. Both Miss Marple and Inspector Neal assume that, okay, well, the daughter must be alive, and her name is Ruby. And they can't get Mrs. Mackenzie to say anything about Ruby because she's essentially been disowned. We're not exactly sure why. She's just not very forthcoming with information. But, you know, there are quite a few women in the story who are the right age to be this woman. Right. It's Ruby McKenzie, Mary Dove, Jennifer Fortescue, who, of course, married into the family, and also our beloved Pat, who just married into the family. They all very well could be this missing daughter, Ruby. And I just mentioned a murder is announced, and this is, of course, reminding me very much of the Pip and Emma uh, right. hijinks in that story. We've seen this kind of thing in Christie before. Right. There's- There's also a lot of drama about the inheritance because we haven't seen that before. Adele made a will shortly before her death, but that money, that 100,000 pounds, which we previously mentioned, actually doesn't go to her because she died under 30 days from the death of her husband. And apparently the clause has to do with an increase in plane crashes. So I did a little digging into this, and in the U.S., at least, there's something called the Uniform Simultaneous Death Act, which states that if two or more people die within five days of each other, and their wills don't provide for this situation explicitly, then each person is considered to have died before the other, meaning any provisions as to one of those people inheriting from the other won't hold, and the people who do inherit won't have to deal with the money getting taxed multiple times. No surprise that Christie would have been a fan of such a law. And fun fact, but clauses in wills that do lay out what happens in these situations are sometimes called Titanic clauses, as the sinking of the RMS Titanic caused so many simultaneous death situations. So it's an actual thing, although my sense is that it really only applies when the two people die from the same incident. The most obvious situation for such an event in 1953 is the one that Christie gives, of course, i.e. a plane crash, but 30 days rather than five days felt like an unreasonably large window of time. That would be an extremely slow-working complication from an injury, which is why we felt the need to look into this. And interestingly, there's another quirk of estate planning called a survivorship clause, in which you have to live a certain amount of time after a person dies to properly inherit from them, since it's assumed that the person who died intended for their gift or money or whatever to go to someone who was going to live significantly longer than them. And the default period for this clause is 30 days. So it seems as though Christie was conflating these two principles of property law here, but no biggie. Right. So she actually ends up leaving Vivian with nothing. So the money left to the kids is split unevenly. Val gets the lion's share, and then it's 25-25 with Elaine and Lance. And Val and Lance get into a feud about this because Lance 
decides to try to insert himself into the firm. And Val hates him. So he's now showing up to the office in the city in London. And Val's furious about it. And so what he ends up agreeing is that, okay, if Lance will go away, he can just take the bad deals that their dad made in Africa, including the Blackbird Mine. Yeah, and it's kind of billed as like, oh, I just want to get out of here and go back to Africa with Pat. And I'll take all the Africa stuff since I'll be there anyway. And to hell with all of this. Well, and Val just so badly wants him to get away from him. Right, that. That he he agrees to it. He says, okay, yeah. great. It is finally time to bridge on over into the world as it actually is. And we have a, a couple of clues. There aren't a whole lot of clues. I think that this is definitely a Christie that's light <laughs> on clues. And that has a lot of end of the book explanation that happens mm, here. Yes. Especially for a Miss Marple. For sure, yeah. But we do know that someone is not who they say they are. One of those women is seemingly is Ruby McKenzie. We also know that there is a discarded marmalade jar found in the bushes and that that marmalade apparently contained the taxine, which killed Rex Fortescue. On the top of it. Yeah, on the top of it. So it wasn't in his tea. It was actually in the marmalade. None of these are really clues. This is all just sort of evidence that adds up, but that is useful as we get to our actual clues. So Catherine Brobeck, I'm so excited for you to take it away with clue number one because it's one of your favorites. (laughs) Clue number one, never underestimate the help. Not ever. Can we say that enough times? Nope. The deduction here, Gladys, who seemed nervous, was nervous for a reason because Gladys knew something. It was not just because she was scared by Scotland Yard and she was wearing her fancy stockings for a reason. And she did not leave that tray in the hallway for no reason. A maid trained by Miss Marple does not just leave trays and go willy-nilly outside for no reason. All right, clue number two, and I am so excited that I have this one because this is one of my (laughs) personal favorites. Laundry lists. Yes, they're not always key in Christie, but they usually are. And we actually have two here, so I'm doubly happy. And they're both important. One of them is actually brilliant, too. So the first one is when Inspector Neal is searching among Gladys's things, and here's what Christie writes. There were cuttings about flying saucers, about secret weapons, about truth drugs used by Russians, and claims for fantastic drugs discovered by American doctors, all the witchcraft, so Neil thought, of our 20th century. I love that last line, all the witchcraft of our 20th century. I know, I like it too. It's funny, like you mentioned how Neil's thoughts, like we're privy to Neil's thoughts in a way that we aren't often, and his thoughts are usually interesting. So we'll leave the deduction for what's important uh, in that laundry list in the resolution, but it's as usual in Christie, it's one of those middle items that ends up being so important. And then here's the second laundry list, which is when Inspector Neal, again, is reading a newspaper on a train late in the novel. Always important when characters read newspapers in Christie. He read of an earthquake in Japan, of the discovery of uranium deposits in Tanganyika, of the body of a merchant seaman washed up near Southampton, and of the imminent strike among the dockets. He read of the latest victims of the caution of a new drug that had achieved wonders in advanced cases of tuberculosis. Once again, it's a middle item that is the clue here. And we have, though, you know, to be fair, been put on notice that Africa may play some sort of a role in this mystery. The Blackbird Mine is in Africa. Lance and Pat just came from Africa. Kenya 
to be specific. And I do think what's so brilliant about this second laundry list is that Christy inserts a red herring item also in the middle of the list, which is the body of a merchant seaman being washed up. That sounds super important in a murder mystery, and it's totally a red herring. It has nothing to do with anything. I just, I love that she threw that in there. It's so devious of her. Um, No, I like it. So the deduction is that it's the uranium deposits in Tanganyika, that would be modern day Tanzania, which are important. But where is Tanganyika exactly, Uh, especially perhaps in relation to the Blackbird Mine? Could that be important? Hmm. So, clue number three. You know, I love me some geography. I love to go on road trips. I love maps. Let's settle in for a geography lesson. (laughs) How amazing is it that African geography can help you solve a Christie novel? I love it. Me too. Lance says the Blackbird Mine was in West Africa. Miss Ramsbottom mentions in passing, it's in East Africa. It just seems like maybe a slip of the tongue, but what should our deduction here be? Should it be perhaps that Kenya is in East Africa? Could Lance be deflecting attention from the true region where the Blackbird Mine is, where super valuable uranium deposits were just found? All right. Well, that actually dovetails quite nicely with clue number four. We're building our bridge here, Catherine. We are. Forgive me. We're trying. We're trying. Forgive me, but I'm going to have to quote Oprah, quoting Maya oh. Angelou, to oh, get to this man. clue. Oh, yeah. One of the most important lessons I ever learned from you. And I still am, you know, I think I know the lesson. And then I'll walk into a situation and think that's that same lesson. And that is when people show you who they are, believe them. Yes. Absolutely. A person says to you, I'm selfish, or I'm mean, or I am unkind. Or I'm crazy. Or I'm crazy. Believe them. They know themselves much better than you do. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone acts like, say, a cad or a jerk, and they talk a lot about what a cad and a jerk they are, maybe, just maybe, we should actually believe that they are a cad and a jerk capable of doing bad things, no matter how superficially charming they may be. We could also call this clue the Monty clue <laughs> because... It's it's for sure the Monty clue. Yeah. Also, though, I, d- I do want to say for listeners, I originally wrote when people, you know, show you who they are, believe them, and Kemper sourced it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I immediately I immediately was like, Oprah, my Angela. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we've seen this character so many times before. It's the charmer who is good in a pinch and may exhibit great bravery and courage and charisma and be good in wartime. But in regular times, this person just may be the murderer, no matter how likable they may be. And that is a pretty fair description of one character in this book. I'm talking Talking, of course, of Lance Fortescue. I mean, it's not totally fair because, you know, Christy's written so much that she's done this where the character who seems like a bit of a baddie, though he's charming on the surface, ends up being bad. She's also done the opposite. I'm going to mention a previous novel here for a second. So fast forward if you don't want any spoilers. But Neville Strange in Toward Zero as the seemingly sunny, charming guy who has nothing wrong with him turns out to be a gibbering psychopath, right? He does not fall under the Monty Clue, 
So it's not like she always does this, but that Monty type character, and of course Monty is her brother, who is very much this kind of a person. Yes, I mean, he, he does often turn out to be, if not the ultimate murderer, at least involved somehow, right? Or capable of doing Well, I mean, but Philip and then there were none, spoiler alert, he is the same Africa subplot even. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, what is our final clue? It's a, it's a little mini clue. And we kind of only get it retroactively, but Miss Marple points out that Patricia seems to have remarkably bad taste in men. Patricia might be me. Um, <laughs> her previous two marriages were disastrous in different ways, and we might know how this is going to turn out. That might be the deduction, because maybe third time's a charm, or... Maybe it's really not. <laughs> Maybe it's really not. All right, so let, let's get into it. The end of this novel in which, you know, we reach our resolution, it's not as elegant as it is in many other Christie's because we, re- we really do have to have it explained to us. So here's what the solution is. Yes, one of the Mackenzies is in Utree Lodge. That would be Jennifer, Val's wife. She's Ruby. She swapped places with another nurse friend when Val was sick, actually. And her plan was that she was going to avenge her father by just ruining Rex Fortescue's life and just all of the Fortescue's generally. She didn't really know what she was going to do, as evidenced by the fact that she fell in love with her patient, Val. Why remains unclear because they're extremely unhappy in their marriage. And she basically was much happier when she was a nurse and is now just completely bored and miserable. That's why her you know, mother in the asylum has disowned her because she's not only given up her plans of revenge, but married into the family. Right. But she did put the blackbirds on the desk and in the pie. So that mm-hmm. that was her. But what was going on in terms of our central <laughs> puzzle mystery here, Catherine? Okay. Lance, who was the prodigal son, who's come back, he had found out that the whole Blackbird thing had happened. Meaning the discovery of uranium deposits in and around the Blackbird mine, which is, of course, in East Africa, like Mr. Ramsbottom said, close to Kenya, where Lance was living. So he went to like a holiday thing. Kind of like a holidaying camp. Yeah. I mean, I th- it made me think of the family camp in Dirty Dancing. The Catskills yeah. for American listeners. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that it was a sort of Catskills thing. And he seduced Gladys, the maid, as Elbert, her dear Bert, and told her a fake story about how Rex had been unfair to him and his family and how he was going to get to the bottom of it using, wait for it, because we had that laundry list earlier, truth serum. So, quote-unquote, Bert gave Gladys the, quote-unquote, truth serum, which was, in fact, taxine, and convinced her to put it in the marmalade. Then he went back to Kenya with his beloved wife, who he really does love her. This is like a really weird point in this story is that part of the entire reason he does this is because he loves his wife. Well, that goes hand in hand with that Monty character. I mean, we saw who's a really good example of this. He's so similar to, I'm going to spoil, Taken at the Flood. So skip forward if you want. In Taken at the Flood, our ultimate murderer is a really, really bad, charming man who is absolutely in love with the heroine of the story. Right. He truly is. 
but he's also a murderer. <laughs> so same thing. No, and I mean, there are other, I mean, again, spoiler, there's a little bit of that sort of like Amias Crail thing that the person he loves most on earth is Caroline. Yeah, love does not purify no. person in Christine. Nope. If anything, it further distorts and destroys. Correct. Yep, absolutely. So. so he did this whole camp thing with Gladys. Then he waited. He went back to England. He murders Adele so that she would not get any of the inheritance, which would have ruined the firm and which he was aware of. And then he murdered Gladys so that she wouldn't be able to tell on him. You know, Lance used the Blackbird business that had been happening vis-a-vis Jennifer as Ruby McKenzie. Yeah. And he said, oh, I'm going to pretend that some psycho serial killer is trying to kill people according to some stupid right. nursery rhyme. But what they realized was that Gladys yeah. was killed before Adele. And according She's, to the nursery well, rhyme, it had to have been the king, the queen, and then the maid. But the maid was killed before the quote-unquote queen. He beckons her out of the house dispatches her quickly and then walks on in and has, you know, a lovely tea and then dispatches his stepmother. Does it all with his usual charm and effervescence. It's just that that's what makes Miss Marple realize that the nursery rhyme is a cover. And I love that. I love that the nursery rhyme actually ends up being used as part of the obfuscation here because it's quite effective. And we haven't even mentioned it. And I think it's fair that we haven't because it's never really resolved in the book, which I found so odd. But there's this whole runner about Rex Fortescue having acted really erratic before he died. Okay, like, so like so he had um, apparently dementia is what's implied, right? That he had something like a form of Alzheimer's. Do you think that's what's implied? It's called DPI. I Googled it. So they refer to DPI in the, oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Okay. I mean, my interpretation is that he realized that these uranium deposits were his and he was just gleeful about the riches that were coming to him and he hadn't shared this information with anyone yet. Well, I mean, which was also why he was letting the business all, kind of but founder. Also, also, that's totally possible. You can have two interpretations and it's not clear at the end yeah. which one is correct, but the family thinks that he has this thing called DPI, which appears to be some form of Alzheimer's. It's all just unclear. It's a loose end that's not yeah. totally tied up, I have to say. I mean, I'm sure a reader might have a better idea what DPI might be, I guess. But I mean, my read on it was some sort of Alzheimer's situation. Right, which would then at least put all of the information in Lance's camp. So Lance is the only one who knows right. about the which, uranium. Which actually makes more sense in context of the book. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that does make more sense. This is all because, again, Miss Marple didn't spring a trap here. He wasn't no. caught in the act. So it's all going to be a little bit hard to prove. But, you know, Inspector Neal is obviously convinced. We're convinced. We travel right. home with Miss Marple where she gets a letter that has been mm -hmm. waiting for her. It's really sad. It's so sad. It, this is actually, I think, one of the most moving and powerful endings in any Christie novel and certainly in any Miss Marple novel that we've read up to this point. You know, I won't read out the letter itself, but essentially Gladys makes it very, very clear that Bert is Lance Fortescue because she encloses a picture that she Photograph, took, yeah. even though he didn't want her 
to take any photos, but she, she just couldn't resist. And she was so excited about this right. new relationship. And she wanted to share it with Miss Marple, who she has had such fond memories of because Miss Marple always treated her well. And we know that Miss Marple is now going to be able to hand that over to Inspector Neal. And now it's an open and shut case. And this is yeah. what Christy writes after Miss Marple finishes reading this letter. Miss Marple, her lips pursed together, stared down at the photograph. The pair pictured there were looking at each other. Miss Marple's eyes went from Gladys's pathetic, adoring face, the mouth slightly open, to the other face, the dark, handsome, smiling face of Lance Fortescue. The last words of the pathetic letter echoed in her mind. You can see what a nice boy he is. The tear rose in Miss Marple's eyes. Succeeding pity, there came anger. Anger against a heartless killer. And then, displacing both these emotions, there came a surge of triumph. The triumph some specialist might feel who has successfully reconstructed an extinct animal from a fragment of jawbone and a couple of teeth. <laughs> the end. Whoa. That's a great ending. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's a great It's a great ending. Like, I legitimately do not like this book, but part of me thinks it's really good. I'm with you on thinking that it's really good. I think that I enjoyed it a lot more than you did, but I still don't think that it's one of the best Christie's, even though it is quite good. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans, such as yourselves, to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Let us talk briefly about the adaptations that exist for this novel. So first, I wanted to mention an adaptation that we're not going to cover since it's not in English, but it's worth noting that there is a Russian language adaptation of this novel from 1983 titled The Blackbird's Mystery or Secret of the Blackbirds. And I'm, of course, getting this information from Mark Aldridge's Agatha Christie on screen. Apparently, this is very similar in spirit to the Russian language adaptation we did cover of And Then There Were None, which would be produced four years later. This adaptation was also very faithful to the text, though it transposed the action to the modern day. And apparently, it even has Miss Marple playing with a Rubik's Cube in one scene. Hey, very fascinating. The first English language adaptation we have is our beloved Joan Hickson for the BBC and Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, and this aired in 1985. It's the fourth and final adaptation of the first season. I already mentioned it's called A Pocketful of rye. But um, this is where the quirk as to ownership is actually quite significant because, again, as I mentioned, the rights to the novel did not lie with the Christie family. And when the BBC were negotiating with the Christie estate as to the first season of the Hickson series, they felt that they needed at least three titles to make the series worth their while. But Agatha Christie's daughter, Rosalind, refused to give them more than two. You know, this was coming off of the 60s MGM adaptations of Miss Marple. The Hickson series, the Suchet series hadn't happened yet, so they were just very skittish 
about giving over a series character such as Miss Marple for a television adaptation. And she just wasn't prepared to do that. They were at a standstill and there may not have been a Joan Hickson series if it hadn't been for the fact that the Cork family was totally willing to sell a pocket full of rye. So they got the body in the library and a murder is announced from the Christie estate. And then the Cork family played ball with a pocket full of rye. And then in the end, they also did end up getting the rights to the moving finger. I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but I think at that point the ball got rolling. So yeah. in, in a way, if not for Agatha's tax scheme funding Max's archaeological book, we might have never had Joan Hickson as Miss Marple. I'm just saying. The other thing I, I just wanted to highlight that I learned in Mark's book was this interesting tidbit about the casting of Dr. Foster, because I, I certainly noticed this when I was watching. This is what Mark writes. The only actor considered for the part of Dr. Foster was Louis Mahoney, which was a relatively rare instance of the series casting a black actor in a role, although it did demonstrate that unlike some period dramas, the producers made some attempts to show the real makeup of Britain in the post-war period, not an entirely fictionalized one devoid of non-white faces. I appreciate that. So I thought that this Hickson adaptation was good. I don't have my usual quibbles with this one. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked it too. There's like a weird car chase thing at the end. Yeah, the adaptation is very faithful as, you know, especially in the first season of the Hickson series, they were. There is this odd ending whereby we get Lance confessing everything to Pat while they're in a car that's being observed by subordinates of Neil. And then Lance basically screams at Pat to get out of the car. And then he tries to pull a runner. Of course, his truck smashes into him at high speed, killing him. And we see his bloody dead face. <laughs> like It's all very yeah. bloody and violent. I just like don't understand. I mean, it's a runner of our entire podcast. How many of these end in a car chase and how many like actual things ended a car chase? Very few. Very few Christie novels have car chases in them. Yeah, it's true. Like the, <laughs> there's not a lot of car chasing in the text. And why? Why is it always the insertion of a truck? I don't proceedings. know. I a, kind of a, prefer a, the Lori backing a, a up. Lori, yeah. Yeah. That's a, I like the kinder, gentler backing up Lori and Poirot just being like, oh, oh mon dieu. <laughs> I just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get why that's such a trope. I mean, maybe we should ask Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Moving right along to our second offering in the English language, we, of course, have ITV's Agatha Christie's Marple. This aired in 2008. It was actually the very first episode to feature Julia McKenzie after she took over from Geraldine McEwen after three seasons. It's also fine. Julia McKenzie, for me, does not really capture Miss Marple's Avenging Fury persona, you know, which we see so much in this book. But she's a lot more grounded, and I think she probably just wanted to put in a quieter performance to contrast with where the character had gone under Geraldine McEwen, especially in the latter seasons. So it didn't fully evoke the novel in the, in the way that I think Hickson did. But Matthew McFadden with mustache is Inspector Neal. And I was just so excited. At this point, it's a toss-up as to whether he makes me think of Darcy from the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I have fought against my better judgment, my family's expectation, the inferiority of your birth, my rank and circumstance, all these things, and I'm willing to put them aside and ask you to end my agony. I don't understand. I love you. Most ardently. 
or Tom from Succession. Ooh, king of edible leaves, his majesty the spinach. But either way, he's quite beloved. It's funny, there's not that much to say about this adaptation either. Nothing to write home about in terms of those adaptations, but nothing to send a strongly worded letter about either. Let's put it that way. They're fine. I don't necessarily recommend anybody go watch them. Although, what else does anybody have to do except go watch some Joan Hickson? So in that case, please go watch it. All right. Well, let's get into the rankings for this novel. First up, we have plot mechanics. And I would like to start this off just with an acknowledgement that this is a Christie novel that has so many echoes of previous novels. Yeah. So... If spoilers are scary to you, you might want to skip over this whole section because I'm just we're just going to be talking about some previous works here, Fast and Furious, for a few minutes. But the very first Miss Marple short story, and I would possibly say podcast nemesis, The Tuesday Night Club, involves a maid named Gladys, mm-hmm. who is cajoled by an unscrupulous man into poisoning her mistress via, oh yes... Yield hundreds and thousands, Catherine. That would be the Tuesday Night Club, our favorite short story. <laughs> no, no, you brought it up again. It's like saying Bloody Mary into a mirror, Kemper. Somebody now is just going to tell us yet again. <laughs> we know, we know, we know that hundreds and thousands are still a thing, that they are very much alive and well. We call them sprinkles. Their death has been greatly exaggerated by Catherine Brobeck and Kemper Donovan on the All About Agatha podcast. (laughs) Our deepest apologies to the hundreds and thousands board that apparently has great power over in the UK. But moving on. No, no, no. And Australia and South Africa. Any Commonwealth country. (laughs) True, true. Not just the UK. Oh, boy. All right. Let's stop talking about hundreds and thousands. But yeah, I mean, very obvious parallels here. John Curran actually even notes that she referenced the short story in her notebooks when she was planning this one. So so there's that. Hercule Poirot's Christmas actually comes to mind. Yeah, very similar. I had thought about that, too. It's very very similar. similar. Like Robert Barnard almost, I think, called it a bit of a rehash of Hercule Poirot's Christmas. I don't think that's totally fair. I mean, we do have the main murder victim being a horror show patriarch of a large family who made his fortune partially by backstabbing some other man long ago in Africa. (laughs) So, you know, that is parallel. The backstory in terms of the Africa business is very much central to solving the puzzle in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, but here it's a red herring. I appreciated that that was different. The the backstabbing, obviously, in Africa. The mine itself is, of course, central, but the whole backstabbing business was a red herring here, and it was totally not in Hercule Poirot's Christmas. And then we also, of course, had the absent prodigal son of the family returning home and garnering a lot of suspicion. And again, that is totally flipped as well, because in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, that son turned out to be totally innocent, whereas here he is totally guilty. So I actually, like, I don't mind those echoes, per se. No, 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 but I mean, we get it, like, a million times. We already mentioned Philip Lombard. I mean, you get all of that kind of stuff. Your crime is you left somebody in Africa. It's a bit too specifically similar, perhaps. We touched on it, but I didn't necessarily appreciate the echo that we got of a murder as announced with the two Mackenzie children potentially pretending to be other people's names of their own. The Pip and Emma business was probably my least favorite aspect of a murder as announced, and they are both pointless in A Murder is Announced and here, ultimately. So that did not particularly tickle me. And then 
even though it isn't necessarily reflected in the text, I think it's worth noting that the planning of this book was very much intertwined with After the Funeral. And apparently Christie alternated every few pages in her notebook between the two, kind of similar to how she wrote and her M and the body in the library, like side by side. Right. I just say that because I always want to keep in mind how amazing she is and what a fertile brain she has. Like that's just, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like, like it's incredible. I, I can't even imagine, frankly, I can't even imagine doing it. I mean, as we're critiquing Christy, I think it's always just important to keep that in mind. And then the, the final echo I, I just wanted to note comes from our good friend, John Curran, who provides this fascinating tidbit from Christie's notebooks, which is that the fake argument and they do it with mirrors was a originally supposed to take place between two brothers named Percival and Lancelot. And they were a good brother and a bad brother. And they were supposed to seemingly be at odds with each other, but in fact, plotting together. And obviously she threw the Warring Brothers element out of that novel and used it in this one. So again, it's just evidence of the fertility of her imagination and how she was just pulling different things and throwing them into different books. And it's great, but I think in this book, there's a little bit of a tonnage issue with how many echoes there are because it does end up feeling a little familiar, not in the best of ways somehow. That's my overall sense. And the plotting's not good. What we end up having is Miss Marple sitting down Inspector Neal and basically saying, okay, here are three pages of what happened. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't, there are a lot of things that work well about this, but like, it's not very well plotted. No, I agree. I actually come out at a five for plot mechanics. That's fine with me. Plot credibility, I think this book does fairly well. Again, I don't think it does particularly well, but I don't think it does particularly badly. Money is always a credible motivation for murder, and I think Lance Uh. is a convincing murderer. You know, she had honed the Monty character by this point to, I think, make him convincing. And I I, I hope you're ending up with five here, too. I was going to say a six, but I'm happy to say a five. And I just want to point out one other flaw that I don't think we mentioned yet, which um, has to do with the poison itself. And, you know, Christy usually handles poisoning so well. And perhaps I'm misreading this. So if, if someone out there would like to correct me on this, I'd be happy to hear it. But we're told specifically that taxine is an unusual poison to choose. And part of the reason why it's so unusual is that it's very bitter and that it tastes bad. Because you would taste it in tea, but you wouldn't taste it in coffee, right? Because coffee is bitter. And then we find out, oh, it wasn't in the tea, so that's fine. But we ultimately find out it was in marmalade. Which is bitter, though. Marmalade? Marmalade is incredibly bitter. You're putting the peel in marmalade. Maybe I just eat really sweet marmalade, but the marmalade... I mean, I eat marmalade regularly, and I would say that it was sweet. I would say marmalade's bitter. Okay. All right. Agree to disagree. Maybe you're getting really sweet marmalade. If you're using Smucker's marmalade is over sugared. There is the argument that they're using store bought -bought. marmalade. Yeah. Yeah. But marmalade, if you're making it, you are um, reducing the peel heavily. So, you know, there's totally peel in it, but it's peel amidst sugar. That's funny to me because I always think of it as extremely bitter. All right. Well, that makes me feel better about this. If anyone has some strong opinions on marmalade, I'd love to hear. It could be a nice little postscript to our uh, hundreds of thousands <laughs> debacle. The marmalade wars to come. Well, I guess, uh, <laughs> but you would be you and me, Kemper, though, me saying that I think that marmalade is bitter and you disagreeing with me. <laughs> but yeah, 
I mean, it certainly is a bit of a convoluted way to take ownership of the Blackbird mine, right. but it's a murder mystery. That's the fun, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about that before. I'm perfectly comfortable with a five. Yeah, that's where I'd go. Okay. So then series-long characters, I'm a bit torn. First, I just want to talk briefly about Inspector Neil, because he is technically a series-long character. He'll come up again. good. Yeah, he's really good. He'll come up again in Third Girl. And here's where we're going to start talking about the very specific bitterness (laughs) in this novel, because this is something that I wish I thought of on my own, but I didn't. I'm getting this from Laura Thompson in her brilliant biography of Christie. She pointed out that Christie rarely used the names of people she knew. When she was naming her characters, she did often use place names. Marple itself (laughs) is a place name. She potentially got it from a train route that she traveled often. We don't know that for sure, but. And Neil, she got from Archie's second wife. That's the thing. So it's very unusual for her to name a character with a real name. And this one is extremely unusual because. Neil is the last name of Archie's second wife, who, you know, he was cheating on her, cheating on who who he was cheating on Agatha with during all of her problems in her first marriage. And even more importantly, when Agatha went through her infamous disappearance, she registered at the Harrogate Hydro as Mrs. Neil. Right. So she herself used the name Neil. The sort of conspiracy theory can be taken further. And I was quite convinced by what Laura Thompson had to say, because I mentioned the way that Christie describes the estate, Utree Lodge, in the book. And that was very much how she felt about Styles, the real life home that she made with Archie uh, toward the end of her disastrous first marriage. And that was very much how she felt about the suburb of Sunday. Which is where she lived with Archie. And the hotel that Miss Marple ends up having to leave is the Golf Hotel. Oh, yeah, it's a golf hotel. I mean, this is how Christie paints the suburban setting in the book. And this is obviously also going to go towards setting, which I think actually gets very high marks <laughs> in this book, setting specifically, which we don't often um, highlight setting in Christie. But here's what she writes about Baden Heath, which is the suburb in the book. Baden Heath was almost entirely inhabited by rich city men. It had an excellent train service, was only 20 miles from London, and was comparatively easy to reach by car. And then also, and perhaps most significantly, it had, quote, three well-known golf courses. And yes, it's a it's a golf hotel. We see Vivian Dubois and uh, Del Fortescue, you know, engaging in some hanky-panky when they claim to be playing golf. Hmm, I wonder what she was basing that on. All of those events were far, far in the past, a quarter century in the past, at the point at which she was writing this novel. But we know how damaging they were to her. And I think how formative. I think she kind of had to get it out of her system. I think this book was her evocation of that time. And that's, I think, goes a long way toward explaining the sourness. Yeah, of all of the people and just the the place where they live, both the estate and even the suburb. The fascinating thing to me is that every single person with the exception of Pat and Miss Marple and Inspector Neal, every single person in this book is awful. Yeah. I find this really hard in terms of rankings because what do you rank the series long characters? What do you rank the book specific characters? Because I don't really know. I mean, like, what do you do with awful people? No, I agree. The question is, are they awful people who are well evoked? 
or are they, you know, mm. awful and flat? And I actually, I come down somewhere in the middle on it because just sticking with series long characters for a second, the only other thing I have to mention with Inspector Neil, and I think this is just Agatha Christie almost trolling Archie at this point, but we get that weird, again, interior monologue of Inspector Neil's, which even includes a backstory where he's thinking back to his own childhood when he's first introduced and like how he actually grew up in a real lodge. Like he grew up in a gatehouse. Yeah. And because of this, because she includes a backstory for her Inspector (laughs) d'Histoire, Christy is able to write the words Mrs. Neil because he's thinking about his mother. And I'm just like, wow, you managed to write Mrs. Neil in this book. And that felt like a shoehorn. I see where you're doing there, Agatha. And dare I say, golf clap? I know. That's a terrible, terrible dad pun, my friend. But um, <laughs> I like legitimately like him. He's one of the most fleshed out inspector characters that we have had in any book. We get interiority with him. It's good. And Miss Marple is not in the book very much. But when Miss Marple shows up, I mean, it's like avenging angel Dark Marple. It's hard because Miss Marple is missing from the first half of the book. And even in the second half of the book, she's not in it. She's not in it enough to make up for the fact that she's missing in the first half. But we get the wonderful moment when she's introduced and she's, you know, this angry elderly lady on the train. We get her barreling into the house. We also get this, and I'm just going to have to read out this quote, which is such classic Miss Marple. It's so brutally unvarnished and perceptive on her part about Gladys. Life is cruel, I'm afraid. One doesn't really know what to do with the Gladyses. They enjoy going to the pictures and all that, but they're always thinking of impossible things that can't possibly happen to them. Perhaps that's happiness of a kind, but they get disappointed. I think Gladys was disappointed in cafe and restaurant life. Nothing very glamorous or interesting happened to her, and it was just hard on the feet. Probably that's why she came back into private service. She sees things exactly as they are, but oh, poor Gladys is just, she she never had a chance. No, she had, no, no, she had no chance. This is like super, super dark bramble because she's coming in furious as to what has happened to Gladys. But also she understands why that would have happened to somebody like Gladys. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good Miss Marple for the limited amount of time that she's in it. No, it is. And the only other Miss Marple moment I want to also highlight, because I think it goes a long way toward bringing Miss Marple back to the lightness where mm-hmm. I believe she truly sure, resides. Sure, Kemper. sure, Jan. After all of this and before we get that fantastic <laughs> Avenging Fury ending, Miss Marple comes home and there's another maid, yet another maid. This one is named Kitty. Kitty tells her that she's done a, quote, regular spring cleaning. And then Miss Marple notes instantly, this is what Christy writes, six spider's webs on the cornice. These girls never raised their heads. She was nonetheless too kind to say so. And that encapsulates Miss Marple that she would notice immediately and not say anything. And that's the thing. When she had Gladys under her employ, she was just as kind to Gladys as she's being to Kitty right now. However, Miss Marple's powers only go so far, and eventually Gladys had to go out into the world, and the world ate her up. And there's nothing Miss Marple can do about that other than to avenge her death. And she did. I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of a person. 
Yeah, no, I mean, the fact that she literally used her money from her awful nephew to get onto a train to go take care of somebody who worked for her is an incredible thing, I think, actually. I ultimately find it, and I'm like not joking, I mean, we joke a lot about my love of Marple, your love of Poirot, and how far we take it, but I ultimately find it inspiring. That's really sweet, actually, Kepper. (laughs) Um, So where are we coming down on both of the character categories? It pains me to give the series-long character anything lower than a six, just because of how good Miss Marple is when we get her, and the fact that Inspector Neal is quite good and interesting, too. Interesting. I like him. I would have gone pretty high on that category, to be honest. I would do either a six or a seven. For book-specific characters, I actually think that they're not super strong because so many... They're absolutely terrible. And so this is why I was going to say that I actually really like Inspector Neal and I like Marple when she shows up. So I would have gone with a seven with the series-long characters and I might have dropped down to like a four with the book characters. I totally agree with that. The gems of the novel are in the two. Yeah, they're Neil and Marble and everybody else. Some of the book characters are pretty bad. Yeah, they're just not. I mean, Miss Ramsbottom is a caricature. Adele is a caricature. And, you know, we say this as two people who do not subscribe to the whole, oh, Christy does caricatures and not character theory. Obviously, she usually does not do this, but I did not think that they were well drawn. I did think Gladys certainly was. She's probably one of the better ones. Patricia is a lovely character, but I actually also didn't think she was particularly well-drawn. I think we're made to think that she's lovely and like her, but I don't know if I was actually captivated by her. I mean, you you like her in the book for sure, and you want right, but I'm not. You but want I'm to be fascinated prote- by her? No, like, did I think there, about her after I close oh, the book. No, I mean she doesn't have any character traits. Yeah, and here's also where I'll mention Mary Dove being disappointing because where that character goes is that she is apparently she's a blackmailer. Well, she's a blackmailer, and she also is scoping out houses in her for like a, service. Ju- jewel for jewel theft. Yeah, to be to be burglarized later. Yeah. That has a whiff of Christy thriller to it. I was like, I know. really? That's where Mary Dove went? Oh, okay. That was very disappointing to me, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Four for book-specific characters, seven for series long. And then we get to setting and tone. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. I, I do think that the setting is well-drawn here. And I think that Christy spends a significant amount of time in the beginning showing us what U-Tree Lodge is like, what it looks like, what it feels like. It's extremely unpleasant. It's different from most of the stories that she writes that are set at an estate. This is not in any way a stand-in for Abney Hall by any means. There is no affection here. This is very much the Sunningdale end of things. We're in a suburb. I appreciated all that specificity, and I thought that it was rather well done. So in a weird way, most of the points (laughs) in this category for me go towards setting, which is, you know, reversed from how it usually is. Usually we go on and on about how brisk Christie's writing style is, which goes more to tone. You know, this is one where, again, you start it and you realize that it's very padded up front. It has that awkward ending where the mystery is explained over, you know, a series of pages. It just feels a little clunky. It's not hard to read, but I wasn't blown away by the tone. I agree with you on the setting. I think that's really good, but... The tone of it, do we take points off 
for how sour it is. I wouldn't because I think that the sourness is evoked. It feels real. It feels powerful or else I don't think we would either of us be as affected by it as we No, no, it's true. That's fair. I mean, where were you landing here? Well, I come out on a seven. Yeah, that works for me. I think when we re-rank these, maybe we will not be in a lockdown and we'll feel a little bit more generous about, for example, the book characters and we can reevaluate. But yeah, I think that that seems accurate. I will repeat what I said, which is that while I don't particularly like this book, I actually think this book is pretty good. Yeah. And like I said, I think I like it more than you do, but I also don't think that it's one of her best, even though I do think it's quite good. Let's just quickly go over Stuck in His Time, which happily I think is an easy category because we both, I believe, have zero deductions. Yeah. There is a moment when um, Lance is asked about blackbirds and his response is, what kind of blackbirds? Do you mean genuine birds or the slave trade? And there is also, (laughs) yeah, not great. But there is also something dismissive and potentially symptomatic of Christie's weirdness where Ireland is concerned when Miss Marple tells the doomed yet clueless Pat as she's saying goodbye to her. To go, go back, back to, to Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. She says, go back to Ireland, my dear. Horses and dogs. All that. Well, <laughs> it's like, and also okay. to be completely honest, there's like a thing about mental illness in it that is really bad. Yeah. I mean, if the Rex Fortescue thing is supposed to be pointing toward dementia and then we have that depiction of mrs mckenzie it's not great but it's glancing it does not in any way overwhelm the read the way that sometimes no but i think that i think that we might just like want to point this out in consideration when we reevaluate the points that maybe we should rate the characters higher and maybe we should give a deduction it's Possibly. All right. Well, let's tally up the points here for this book. We've got five plus five plus seven plus four plus seven minus zero for a grand total of 28 points, putting a pocket full of rye somewhere near the middle-ish, lower middle-ish within our rankings here, Catherine. We have a little bit of tie-breaking to do, as we so often do these days. There are a couple of other books that have been awarded 28 points. They are One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, The Secret Adversary, and The Man in the Brown Suit. I feel pretty strongly that this book is better than all three of those. Totally agreed. Yep. Yeah. In particular, one, two, buckle my shoe, which is the other puzzle mystery that we have Mm -hmm. to compare at that level. So we're going to go ahead and put that in 26th place out of 45 novels. So again, middle-ish. Yeah, which feels about right for this book. I think that this is a fine Miss Marple, but we certainly have Miss Marples that are ranked higher, and that is as it should be. Agreed. All right, well, that is a pocket full of rye. Join us next time for something truly exciting. We had the honor of getting on the phone recently with a contemporary mystery author who herself has the honor of garnering frequent comparisons to Dame Agatha. You may have seen us talking about this on Twitter or elsewhere because we could not contain ourselves. We are going to be bringing you a conversation with none other than Ruth Ware, 
in which we talk about how much we love Ruth's books, how much Ruth loves Agatha Christie's books, and a whole lot more. It was a lot of fun, and we cannot wait to bring that to you. And then after that, we're going to be doing our next Labors of Hercules. Exciting. Some Papa Poirot. Joining our dear Papa Poirot. Specifically, we will be covering the Lernaean Hydra and the Arcadian Deer. Hmm. And then... Our next novel, if you're planning ahead, will be Destination Unknown. All right. Well, we would love to hear from you in the meantime. If you would like to join us over on Patreon, we did just recently make one of our Patreon episodes free and available to be downloaded by anyone. And that episode is all about Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. So go on over to www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha if you'd like to check that out. You can also email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is at Brobcat and our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And we so appreciate the ratings and reviews that we've gotten and we would love to get some more and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>